This is History 2311, Week 9A, The Freedom Struggle. I go to the movie and I go downtown. Somebody keep telling me don't hang around. It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know. How do I tell the story of the civil rights movement, let alone the story of the longer freedom struggle of which civil rights was only one part? It's so important. It's so moving. I mean, just in purely dramatic terms, it might be the best story that 20th century American history has got. But it's also so big. The civil rights movement was not one movement. It was a hundred smaller movements. It was a thousand acts of bravery and love and, and also of cowardice and hatred. Historians argue about how to tell the story of the civil rights movement. And that argument is intense because everyone understands that it matters. Do you tell it as a top-down story of great leaders like Martin Luther King, people like President Kennedy, President Johnson? Or do you tell a bottom-up story of a grassroots movement of ordinary people who put their lives on the line? Do you focus solely on African-Americans? I mean, this is their struggle. This is their history. Or do you spend time and give credit to the white liberals who participated in the movement? And do you give any airtime at all to the enemies of the movement? Do you want to know their motives? Do you want to empathize with those who dug in in defense of white supremacy? Historians don't even agree on when the civil rights movement begins and ends. There's actually been a big debate in the last couple of decades between proponents of a classic or short civil rights movement and of a long civil rights movement. Basically, to oversimplify the debate, when we talk about the civil rights movement, are we referring to the crucial decade between about 1954 and 1965? So that's the years of uh, the Montgomery bus boycott, the Brown versus Board decision, the lunch counter sit-ins, the March on Washington. Or when we talk about the civil rights movement, do we also include the struggle for black equality going back to World War II or going back to Harlem in the 1920s or going back further still to reconstruction or to abolition before the Civil War. Also, how far forward do we take it? The fight for freedom and equality did not end in 1965. When you say the civil rights movement, does that include black nationalism and black power movements in the late 1960s and the 1970s? Does it include anti-apartheid and decolonization movements in the 1980s? Does it include Black Lives Matter today? The struggle for equality is plainly not over, so how do we tell this story? We even argue about this label, civil rights. Civil rights movement is the most common label. It draws our attention to the struggle for strict equality under the law, a struggle that was arguably successful. But many people feel that that's too narrow, that civil rights alone are not enough, and they prefer to see the civil rights movement and the civil rights decade as part of a much longer but also a much broader freedom struggle. Now, in my talk today, I am going to focus on the short civil rights movement, on the classic decade from about 1954 to about 1965. 
but I have tried very hard to keep the longer history and the broader history of the freedom struggle in view. For instance, the decades long legal fight of the NAACP that led incrementally bit by bit up to the Brown versus Board decision, which overturned Plessy versus Ferguson and said that separate but equal facilities were in fact inherently unequal. I really hope it doesn't take away from that long history, that decades long history of struggle to say that after decades of brave but often fruitless struggle, the 10 years or so between the Brown decision and the Voting Rights Act saw more progress, saw faster progress for African-Americans than any other time besides Reconstruction. And indeed, this decade is sometimes referred to as the second Reconstruction. Here's a bit of a timeline in three slides from 1954 to 1960 to 1965 to 1968. And I know I went through those quickly, but they'll come back again later in the video. And of course, you can always pause the video or download the slides to take a closer look. And I don't think it takes away from the drama or the importance of this 10-year period to say that the civil rights movement is still unfinished. It's still a remarkable, critical decade, and it's important to talk about why and how so much was achieved. And I am going to talk about leaders like Martin Luther King, but I also want to emphasize that this was a mass movement of ordinary people. I mean, they were extraordinary people, but they were also ordinary people who changed the country through their courage and dedication to this fight. And to some extent, my remarks, I'm also gonna try and highlight the role of young people, uh, especially of students, black and white, who played a huge role in the movement, because this is an object lesson in how ordinary people can change the world. But we'll start with King's movement, with the minister's movement, what King and the black churches brought to the freedom struggle in the 1950s. The United States in the 1950s, nearly 100 years after emancipation, was still a deeply segregated, deeply unequal society. Not just in the South, in the whole United States, half of the nation's black families lived in poverty. In the South, Jim Crow was a legal edifice that had been built up over decades. It didn't just separate blacks from whites, it degraded them, it insulted them, it stole from them at every opportunity. And when they resisted, it punished them viciously. In the North and West, segregation was not mandated by law, but it was still a fact of life, created by housing patterns, by school district lines, by redlining and housing covenants, by white-only unions, and so much more. I'm sure you've all heard the story of Rosa Parks and the Montgomery bus boycott. On December 1st, 1955, a black tailor's assistant named Rosa Parks was taking the bus home from work in Montgomery, Alabama. And she refused, politely but firmly, to give up her seat on a city bus to a white rider. It wasn't even that she was in a white section of the bus, at least I don't think so. I think the rule was that what they would have called colored passengers had to give up their seats to whites no matter where they were on the bus. Anyway, Parks refused to give up her seat and she was arrested. And as news of this spread, hundreds of African-Americans gathered in a local Baptist church and vowed that they were not going to ride the buses until they were accorded equal treatment. And the boycott of the Montgomery City buses lasted for over a year until in November 1956, the Supreme Court ruled that segregation of public transit was unconstitutional. 
Now, Rosa Parks is often mythologized as a little old lady who was just tired. But there's a lot that's wrong with that. First of all, she wasn't that old. She was just 42. Those of us who are north of that age feel a little sensitive about calling that a little old lady. But more importantly, this wasn't a spur of the moment thing. She wasn't just tired. Parks was a veteran of black politics and black activism. She had been working for the NAACP. She had been fighting for African-American rights since the 1930s. And this was a strategic action on her part designed to force a confrontation with white supremacy, designed to force a confrontation with the segregation of the public transit. Now, the pastor of that Baptist church where the boycott was organized was the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. He was, he was quite young. He was a new pastor. He was just 26 years old. But the electrifying speeches that he made in support of the boycott soon made him the movement's national symbol. And King's emergence as a national leader, along with the group that he established, which was the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, marked a shift in the civil rights movement. We might picture the movement at this time as a kind of river being formed by a number of different streams. In the 1930s and 40s, some of the only groups who were actively agitating for civil rights were radical labor unions, including communists. Here's a poster for Earl Browder and James Ford, who were the American Communist Party's candidates for president and vice president in the election of 1936. Notice that the communist poster includes Abraham Lincoln as the great emancipator, along with the slogan, communism is Americanism of the 20th century. Distinct from this kind of radical left, even communist push for African-American rights was the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored Peoples, campaign for legal equality. The NAACP basically is a movement of lawyers and for decades, they had been working a very slow, very patient, legalistic strategy to bit by bit gradually litigate the end of Jim Crow. In this picture, the fourth man from the right, the man with the mustache, I believe, is Thurgood Marshall, who led the legal team in Brown versus Board and would later become the first African-American justice on the U.S. Supreme Court. So we've got the radical labor stream. We've got the... NAACP legalistic stream, and then King and the SCLC, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, formed a kind of third stream, a religious moral stream coming out of the black churches. King and other religious leaders like him framed civil rights as a moral and a spiritual crusade. And the black church became a key organizing center of the movement and articulated a profound moral vision and strategy. And King proved to be a master at appealing to both the deep sense of injustice among Black Americans and also the conscience of white Americans. And he presented the case for civil rights in a vocabulary that merged the Black experience with that of the whole nation. Inspired by writers like Henry David Thoreau and activists like Mohandas Gandhi, you see Gandhi's portrait on the wall of King's office here, King laid out a strategy of peaceful civil disobedience, not passivity, but nonviolence. King said, we must love our white brothers no matter what they do to us. We must make them know that we love them. The strategy of nonviolence was not to do nothing. It was to resist oppression in all ways other than violence 
and in so doing force a moral crisis upon the nation. But I don't want to give you the impression that King was the civil rights movement or that the movement was King. As I said, the civil rights movement was a movement of movements with a hundred centers, a hundred leaders. For a few years after the Brown versus Board decision, things still seemed to be moving slowly. The Supreme Court in Brown versus Board said that schools must desegregate with all deliberate speed. And the Browder decision that came out of the Montgomery bus boycott said that segregated public transit was unconstitutional. But even though the Supreme Court had made these rulings, things didn't actually change on the ground. Things wouldn't change until African-Americans started quietly, bravely standing up and challenging segregation. On February 1st, 1960, four black students in Greensboro, North Carolina, staged a sit-in at a segregated lunch counter in a Woolworths department store. So at a lot of these department stores in the South, African-Americans could buy things, but they couldn't eat at the restaurants inside. The four young men, their names were Azel Blair, David Richmond, Joe McNeil, and Franklin McCain. They weren't career activists. They weren't members of the NAACP or the SCLC, but they were impatient. They had spent the whole semester at school talking about wanting to do something. So they went into the store, they bought a few things to establish that they were customers, then they sat down at the lunch counter, which was for whites only, and ordered a cup of coffee. At first, people didn't really know what was going on. Some tried to helpfully explain the rules. The black dishwasher at the lunch counter tried to shoo them away. When people realized it was a protest, they started shouting and swearing at them. But they sat there all day until the store closed. And then they went home and came back the next day and did it again. But by now, word had spread and something like 20 students joined them and the police showed up, and so did the press. Within a week, sit-ins had started in towns across North Carolina and South Carolina, in Virginia, in Arkansas, and Tennessee. By the end of 1960, some 70,000 demonstrators had taken part in sit-ins like this. The great majority of them were young people, many of them were students, and so younger activists, students especially, became a kind of fourth stream or fourth strand of the civil rights movement. The young people who took part in these sit-ins were often assaulted. They were sometimes arrested. They were always threatened. Here's a couple of activists holding a sit-in, including, I think, Ann Moody. There is a chapter of her amazing memoir, Coming of Age in Mississippi, in your readings for this week. And I believe this picture is of the Woolworth sit-in she describes in that chapter, sitting there patiently and calmly while people pour drinks on them and rub mustard and ketchup in their hair. Some activists were even younger. This is a picture of six-year-old Ruby Bridges walking to school with her mother in New Orleans. In the wake of Brown versus Board, the Supreme Court had ordered the city of New Orleans, just like everywhere else, to desegregate its public school system. But just like everywhere else, it was resisting. The city created entrance exams for kindergarten in hopes of keeping black students out of white schools. And in the whole city, only six black children passed the test. Of those six, there was only one whose parents were willing to send her to a formerly segregated school, and that was Ruby. So for a full year, Ruby Bridges was the only non-white student at her school, and every day for a year, she was mobbed on her way to school, people shouting that they were going to kill her, throwing things, sending death threats. The men wearing suits in this picture are federal marshals assigned to guard and protect her. The marshals had to guard her lunch because people were threatening to poison her. 
only one teacher in the school was willing to teach her and no other students were willing to be in that class. So for over a year, she taught Ruby alone in the classroom each day. Ruby's father was fired from his job. Her grandparents were turned off their land. This was what it meant to challenge white segregation. And similar fights were happening all over the South. This is Elizabeth Eckford, one of nine African-American students who attended the formerly all-white high school in Little Rock, Arkansas in 1957. In April of 1960, about 200 young activists, both black and white, came together in Raleigh, North Carolina to form the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, usually known as SNCC. SNCC leaders included Ella Baker, who was a longtime activist from the Harlem tradition, John Lewis, a Baptist seminary student in Nashville, and Robert Moses, who was a 26-year-old teacher from New York City, who left his job and came down south after seeing a news story about the Greensboro sit-in. So if the NAACP was the lawyer's movement and the SCLC was the Black church's movement, SNCC was the youth vanguard of the freedom struggle. Bob Moses said, we can't count on adults. Young people have to be the organizers, the agents of social and political change. And as the name implies, SNCC embraced the philosophy and tactic of nonviolence, but it was not passive. Month after month, SNCC organized and inspired different actions, often going against the wishes of King and other leaders who feared the backlash, who feared these young people were going to get themselves killed. In 1961, John Lewis and 12 other young activists, black and white, took the first Freedom Ride. They bought tickets from Washington, D.C. down to New Orleans, and they all sat at the front in the white section of the bus and announced their intention, publicly announced their intention, to ride through the entire South that way. So publicity spread, and they were harassed at each stop by growing crowds who would throw rocks, try to block the bus, try to drag them off the bus. In Alabama, a police commissioner, Bull Connor, actually arranged with the local Ku Klux Klan to attack the bus, promising the police would not step in. A mob stopped the bus outside of town and slashed its tires, set the bus on fire, and held the doors shut, trying to burn the Freedom Riders to death. But I think the fuel tank exploded or something, and the fire pushed the mob back. The riders were able to escape the bus, but then the mob beat them with baseball bats and bicycle chains. Later, when the Justice Department demanded to know why the police hadn't stepped in, Connor said no police were available because it was Mother's Day. The violence was terrible, but what SNCC members and others were gradually realizing was that this was their strategy, not to commit violence, but to calmly, bravely, quietly put themselves in harm's way, put themselves in the way of violence, and to suffer the violent reactions of white racism. Martin Luther King preached nonviolence as a philosophy, but the young people in SNCC and similar groups turned it into a tactic. And the spectacle of white mobs, even white police, attacking peaceful protesters, young people, sometimes even school children, with billy clubs, with fire hoses, with attack dogs, this spectacle galvanized the country. It forced the whole country to notice and increasingly to take a side. So SNCC and SCLC intentionally went to the towns and cities which had the most racist, the most violent sheriffs and police chiefs because they knew that a Bull Connor or a Jim Clark could be expected to react in violent and ugly ways. And including white college students in their protests was part of that strategy too. 
when middle-class and upper-class white kids got beaten and ultimately murdered, that was a story the media and the nation could not ignore. The media is part of this story too. Television was still a pretty new medium in the early 1960s, but television news brought images of this violence into American homes. Every night, Americans all over the country could see these images of well-dressed, polite protesters being attacked by violent, angry, shouting mobs. The white North had ignored Jim Crow for nearly a century and they had gotten very good at it, but these images were harder to ignore. One purpose of all this activism was to put pressure on the federal government. So the classic narrative of the civil rights movement always seems to climax with the March on Washington in 1963. The March on Washington, formally called the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, at which a quarter of a million people converged on the nation's capital, was a magnificent moment in American history. This was the occasion for Martin Luther King's famous I Have a Dream speech. And it was a masterpiece of speech making. But speeches and peaceful marches alone would not have affected change on their own. They would not have forced the federal government to act. The real fight, and 1963 was a high point in this fight, was thousands of acts of nonviolent resistance and of very violent reaction. Freedom rides, sit-ins, voter registration drives, attempts to desegregate schools, and these went on week after week after week. In just a single week in June 1963, there were more than 15,000 arrests in 186 cities across the United States. Some southern jails were so full of protesters they couldn't arrest more. And of course, there was violent retribution. There were beatings, there were fires, there were murders. In June 1963, a sniper killed Medgar Evers, who was an NAACP leader in Mississippi. In September, a bomb exploded in a Black Baptist church in Birmingham, killing four little girls. And dozens of Black civil rights activists would be murdered in this period. John F. Kennedy, who became president in 1961, sympathized with the civil rights movement, but was reluctant to take any kind of forceful stand on Black demands. Really, he was preoccupied with foreign policy, with standing up to the Soviets. Also, of course, he was the head of the Democratic Party, which was still the party of the White South. So even though he said he supported civil rights, privately, he pleaded with Martin Luther King and others to tone down the rhetoric, to slow down, to try and stop the freedom rides, avoid further violence. But it was the violence, and in particular, the fact that Southern officials, sheriffs, police, even governors and state governments, were directly defying the federal government. This forced Kennedy to take a stand. In 1962, Kennedy sent 500 federal marshals and ultimately 5,000 army troops to keep order at the University of Mississippi and to protect James Meredith, the one lone Black student there. And in the summer of 1963, Kennedy went on television to call for the passage of a civil rights law banning discrimination in all places of public accommodation. But Kennedy did not live to see the passage of the civil rights bill. On November 22, 1963, he was shot and killed while riding in a motorcade through Dallas, Texas. I'll talk more about the transition from Kennedy to Lyndon Johnson next time. But it's one of the ironies of history that Johnson, a Southerner, the son of a poor white Texas farmer, a self-described redneck, would do more for African-Americans than probably any president next to Lincoln. 
Just five days after Kennedy's assassination, Johnson called on Congress to enact the Civil Rights Bill as a kind of memorial to Kennedy. He said, no memorial oration or eulogy could more eloquently honor President Kennedy's memory than the passage of this Civil Rights Bill for which he fought for so long which was kind of BS. Kennedy didn't fight for the civil rights bill for so long, but it was a smart move on Johnson's part. Johnson didn't even like Kennedy, but he knew that Kennedy's death would give him immense political capital for a short time, and he had to use it to do something big. Johnson was really one of the best political operators ever to be president, and he got Congress to pass the Civil Rights Act in March 1964. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 outlawed discrimination based on race, religion, sex, or national origin. It also outlawed racial segregation in schools, discrimination in the workplace, and in public accommodations like buses and trains and so on. The Civil Rights Act appealed to Johnson's great ambition. Johnson wanted to go down in history as one of the great presidents, as someone who had accomplished great things. But he was also well aware of the political costs of this action. When he signed the Civil Rights Act in 1964, he said, I think we probably just gave the South to the Republican Party for the next generation. The Civil Rights Act was a great victory for the movement. And Johnson hoped and assumed that he could now turn his attention to other things. But SNCC and the movement at large did not let up. The Act of 1964 had at least one big gap. It did nothing to protect the right to vote. And so in the summer of 1964, which was an election year, SNCC and other groups organized a voter registration drive in Mississippi, which they judged to be arguably the most diehard racist state. Mississippi is where Medgar Evers was killed. It's where Emmett Till was lynched in 1955. And so hundreds of activists and especially college students, both black and white from around the country, traveled to Mississippi in the summer of 1964 to take part in what they called Freedom Summer. Of course, this is one of the possible topics for the uh, essay assignment for this class. So some of you, I hope, have already gotten into those primary sources and are reading about Mississippi Freedom Summer. The Freedom Summer volunteers fanned out across the state registering or trying to register African-Americans to vote, also setting up freedom schools where they taught remedial literacy classes. And they also taught about things like African-American history and race relations and the civil rights movement, which were all things that no public school in Mississippi, no Mississippi public school would dare teach black children. As expected, and perhaps even as intended, the Freedom Summer volunteers faced a wave of violence. There were dozens of beatings, there were hundreds of arrests, there were something like 35 bombings, and three of the Freedom Summer workers, Michael Schwerner, Andrew Goodman, and James Cheney, were murdered in June of 1964. And as I say, the primary source packet we've given you for the assignment has a whole lot more material on all of this. The kind of dramatic climax of Freedom Summer happened not in Mississippi, but in Atlantic City when the Democratic Party held its national convention in that election year. The Mississippi Democratic Party, which was completely controlled by whites, sent its all-white delegates to the convention. But the Freedom Summer workers had created their own party, an alternate party, called the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party and elected their own slate of delegates, both black and white, 
they insisted they were the legitimate delegation from the state of Mississippi, and they demanded to be seated at the convention. Now, all of this was kind of symbolic. The convention didn't matter. Lyndon Johnson was going to be the Democratic nominee in 1964, but it was an attempt to force Johnson and the Democratic Party leadership to choose between white supremacy and civil rights, between the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party and the all-white Mississippi Democratic Party. Johnson feared that all the Southern delegates from, from many Southern states would walk out if he seated the Freedom Party delegates. In the end, the Democrats offered the Freedom Party a compromise of two token seats at the convention, which they rejected. And so they weren't seated in the end. Fannie Lou Hamer, who was a Mississippi resident, one of the delegates elected by the Freedom Party, testified before the Credentials Committee, and her remarks there were televised and galvanized the country, describing the way she was beaten when she tried to register to vote. So the struggle went on. In January 1965, SNCC and SCLC, so that's King's Movement and the Student Movement, came together to organize another voting rights drive in Selma, Alabama. And the choice of Selma kind of showed that King had embraced the SNCC strategy because they knew that the Selma sheriff, Jim Clark, could be expected to respond with violence. They staged a series of rallies and marches to and around Selma, culminating in three marches from Selma to the state capital, Montgomery, in March 1965. The first of these marches on March 7 became known as Bloody Sunday after state troopers and police attacked the unarmed marchers with billy clubs and tear gas and cattle prods. After the second march on March 9th, a young black activist named Jimmy Lee Jackson and a white minister from Boston, James Reeb, were both murdered. Again, the astonishing thing about Selma was the discipline and bravery of the movement members responding to physical danger with courage, dignity, and nonviolence. Moved by this and forced into action by this, on March 15th, Lyndon Johnson went on television where he praised the marchers for their bravery and called for Congress to enact a law securing the right to vote. And Johnson closed his speech by quoting the civil rights song, We Shall Overcome. This was the clearest, most powerful endorsement from the White House that the movement had ever received. Now, Johnson had won the 1964 election in a landslide. He had a strong majority in Congress, and it soon passed the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which guaranteed the right to vote and obliged the federal government to protect the rights of all voters. The passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1965 was kind of the zenith of the civil rights movement, the great legislative achievement, the high watermark of black and white unity within the movement. After the passage of the Voting Rights Act, the freedom struggle was far from over, and the movement did not end in 1965, but it did change. For one thing, the movement was moving out of the South. It was increasingly addressing issues of racism, poverty, economic inequality, and so on in the cities of the Northeast and the Midwest and California. In the spring and summer months of 1964, 1965, 67, 68, there would be major protests and uprisings by African-Americans in almost every big US city, not just in the South, but all around the country. The Watts uprising in Los Angeles in 1965, the Detroit riot of 1967, the Newark riot of 1967, many of these precipitated by incidents of police violence. 
The movement was also moving beyond a narrow definition of civil rights as the absence of legal segregation. Activists were now trying to attack inequality in a much broader way. They were trying to respond to a host of issues affecting, afflicting black urban life. Things like poor housing, poor public education, police brutality, crime. And as hard as the civil rights struggle had been, these issues were even harder to get at. To be fair, there had always been an economic dimension to the movement. I mean, the March on Washington was, after all, the March on Washington for jobs and freedom. But that economic side of things often gets forgotten. After 1965, with the voting rights seemingly won, the movement shifted from confrontation with Jim Crow segregation in the South to a confrontation with the deeper structures of American capitalism. Now, it's very easy to slip into a kind of narrative where a good civil rights movement in the early 60s is followed by a bad black power or black nationalist movement in the late 60s, which somehow invites its own defeat by, quote, going too far. I'm really trying to avoid that trap. First of all, if you're fighting for freedom and equality and justice, I'm not sure you can go too far. But also this reading of the movement is just too simple. It can be easy and maybe even handy uh, in a history class to say, contrast Martin Luther King with someone like Malcolm X. King of course was the great practitioner and prophet of nonviolence. While Malcolm X can be portrayed as the militant spokesman for an angrier black nationalism. But the truth is that these two traditions always existed side by side in symbiosis with one another. And what we might call the imperative for love on the one side and the imperative for black dignity and self-determination on the other, these two imperatives existed side by side in the thinking of both men. Malcolm X's philosophy was more loving and King's philosophy was more radical than the common stereotype allows. But it is true that after 1965, what had been a decade of astonishing progress seemed to come to an end. The cooperation between black and white activists that had marked the classic phase of the movement that had reached its height probably in Mississippi Freedom Summer broke down after 1965. So for example, in 1966, Stokely Carmichael replaced John Lewis as the head of SNCC. And soon after, SNCC voted to become an all black organization asking its white members to leave. Carmichael was associated with the slogan, black power, a slogan that many whites at the time regarded as some kind of reverse racism. And the mainstream media, which had once been largely sympathetic to the student movement, now kind of recoiled from it, presenting Carmichael and others as dangerous extremists. In 1966, Huey Newton and Bobby Seale formed the Black Panther Party in Oakland, California, and the Black Panthers became new standard bearers for a philosophy of direct action, self-reliance, and self-defense. They defined their goal not as integration with whites, but as a fight for decolonization, liberating Black communities from the white power structure. 
The Panthers were best known at the time for their uh, military style dress, their open display of weapons, and their refusal to denounce violence as a tactic, whether that was violence in self-defense or even violence as a revolutionary strategy. But a lot of the actual work that the Black Panthers did was not violent at all. It was things like community building, providing food, clothing, medical treatment, drug rehabilitation in the poorest African-American communities. The fragile and contested and complicated partnership between Martin Luther King and Lyndon Johnson also broke down after 1965. Johnson, as I said, felt like he was done. He felt like he'd done enough for civil rights. He wanted King to give him credit and stop pressing for more. Also, Johnson was increasingly absorbed with the war in Vietnam, which we will talk about in the next few lectures. In April 1967, Martin Luther King came out against the war in Vietnam. He said that the war was unjust, that it was criminal, and that it prevented progress towards equality in America, linking the freedom struggle with the anti-war movement. Johnson was furious at what he perceived as a personal betrayal and never spoke to King again. I'll talk more about Johnson in the next couple lectures. He is a complicated, controversial president. Johnson is a tragic figure in a lot of ways, but he does deserve credit for what he did and for his ability to achieve it. And of course, Martin Luther King deserves his place in the pantheon as one of the greatest, most inspiring figures in American history. But ultimately, this movement, call it the civil rights movement, call it the freedom struggle, call it long, call it short, it was a movement of people, tens of thousands of people, young people, old people, black and white, who took action against what seemed to be a permanent immutable system. I want to say this was a movement of ordinary people, but of course, what they did was far from ordinary. It was extraordinary and courageous and important, and it changed history. And the lecture stops here, but that doesn't mean the freedom struggle was over. Thanks very much for watching. It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know change gone.